Hello, everyone, and welcome to DirtyOldMen.tv. Uh, thank you for tuning in once again. This is episode number two. Uh, I'm Simon, and my co-host, very good friend and cohort, uh, Mr. Colin Roundtree, once again to my left or Hello, right. everybody. Good to <laughs> and uh, this week's guest, we're very lucky to have a 32-year veteran in the adult industry, uh, a true pioneer. Uh, he's worked in just about every capacity that you can think about, everything uh, from, and I'm grabbing this from your description, <laughs> Mr. Christian, uh, magazine publication, mail order, production, sales, marketing, the whole kit and caboodle. So thank you very much for being on the show, Christian. Uh, how are you Christian. today? I'm doing well. Thanks, Simon. I, uh, I was concerned. I thought you were suggesting that I was 32 years old. <laughs> you know what? The first time I read that, I was like, wow, he looked, wow, he looks, he looks awesome. <laughs> I was like, yeah, note to self time to rewrite the bio. So we don't have that little syntax problem. <laughs> Although I'd love to shave 20 years. Uh, I, well, I feel that. So, um, let's just jump right into uh, a little bit of history. Let's take a journey through time. Um, Tell us Let about your, your early days and you know how how the industry how you got started in the industry. You've got some colorful tales. So over to you, Christian. Before we go there, I want to ask you who was on episode one. Simon announced that you know in the, in the announcement that this is episode two, and and I'm so thinking the oh so lovely Ashley Fires was on episode one and did a bang up job. Yeah, that makes sense. When Saturday Night Live premiered, episode one had George Carlin. It was a big deal. Episode two was Rob Reiner. <laughs> so I... <laughs> uh, you know Somehow what? Fitting. You know what? Hopefully, like the show will have gotten some traction in episode one, and episode two will be our big blowout. With yeah, you. <laughs> that's what's going to be. Yeah, there you go. There you that's, go. You that's Simon's like... story, and he's going to stick with it. <laughs> I'm right. Okay, I'm sorry, Colin. I interrupted. Go ahead. So let's do take a journey back in time 35 years ago and tell us how you ended up in this industry. You've got some really colorful stories from your you know, late childhood. So tell us the story. Yeah, I, in a weird way, I might have been exacting some kind of passive-aggressive revenge upon my mother. Now, normally, somebody's mother doesn't want the kid getting into the adult entertainment industry just because of the stigma attached to it. With my mother... It was even worse. She did not want me going into this, this sordid business that my father was in. <laughs> my mother and father at that point long, long divorced. I was uh, taking a break from college. I had just completed my freshman year. And uh, with that, not only were my, was I off for the summer, my job was off. I was a tutor. I, I, uh, I tutored Vietnamese children who had just landed in the United States in 1979. Mm-hmm. And... Um, lacking translators, people who could speak Vietnamese and, Eng- and English, they found that if they could get people who spoke French, most of those children actually spoke right. a, some rudimentary French. So I, I had this weird job. My, I was taking kids who were still shell-shocked and speaking to them in what was their second tongue in French and trying to, to get them to... Uh, to learn something about uh, life in America. I have anyway, to ask, est-ce que tu uh, vous parles le français encore? <laughs> oui, oui, so, um, seulement un peu, mais je, j'apprends tout dans l'école. Et, et je, et je peux parler peut-être le suffisant pour, pour faire le, pour faire l'édu, l'éducation 
Okay, that's right. lovely. So that's, that's lovely, <laughs> Kristen. We're, we're going to get the whole Quebec crowd with this. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. I had dinner last night with David Perry, despite the name. He is a French performer director, and so we were, we were, we were doing that. It was tout en français seulement. So yeah, all our, all our French levels are are quite uh, similar, even though I live in a French province. <laughs> but yeah, well, continue. Continue. All, all, all I know is Merci okay. and Mange la Merde. And <laughs> I, that's not very nice. But if, <laughs> if it's Canadian, I think it's Mange la Merde. Eh? La Merde, tu Okay, <laughs> so lest we go down that path too much further, to, let's let me go back to you. you we I left off with you talking about Vietnamese children and then we went down the French bunny hole. And here's what happens. It's summer it's 1979. I'm 18 years old. I'm on break from college. I've lost, for the summer, I've lost my job and nothing to do. And my father, who at this point has been printing adult magazines and owned, uh, since 1964, um, gives me a job for the summer. And, that's, and that summer job turned into an accidental career. Yeah, I was going to ask, actually, like, what, what did your dad think of you entering the industry? But you kind of answered that question. I mean, he obviously was, was kind of fine with it. But when you actually turned, turned it from a summer job into a career, was he, was he okay with it? Did he support it? Uh, well, the, it, it happened uh, a little organically and in phases. Uh, after that summer job, I did go back to college at, while working for him in the afternoons and the evenings. So there was still the the conceit that I was maybe going to finish my college education. Right. The real education, um, my, my dad always used to say that he was educated in the College of Hard Knocks. I would, I'll say that I was educated uh, under the yoke of my father's tutelage and occasional slavery. You know, when you work for your dad, you can't, you can't file a complaint with the labor board that the conditions are horrible or that the hours are bad. Um, and my dad was, my dad is the reason that part of my involvement in the adult industry is so focused on graphics. Uh, he was a printer. He was a he was a layout artist back in the days when people used exacto knives and and ruby lith and opaquing tape and that kind of thing, uh, light tables. Uh, he did all. He created all of his own brochures. So I was fascinated by that process. And he was also an advertising marketing guy. He'd studied a little bit with Saul Bass in the 1950s, the great Saul Bass. And I was, um, one of the things that I, one of the subjects I enjoyed in college was psychology. And I was fascinated by the psychology of marketing, especially in this business where it's so id driven, where there's so many subliminal and not so subliminal messages and and I don't think there's much that I could have learned in college that was as valuable as that. Coupled with um, uh, s uh, some tutor, some mentoring in salesmanship, my father would teach me the difference between the hard sell and the soft sell, and he he showed me how to do it with relationship building hmm. so that it wasn't even a sales call. It was just a friendship call that that would at the very, at the end of a 20 minute call, we would wind up with, by the way, what do you need? So after, after the early tutelage, what was your first like foray into the adult world? Was it in the magazine culture, the early studio scene? Uh, what did you do next once you came out from under father's tutelage? 
Yeah, well, I, 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 one of the things that I did was I was his purchasing agent for the mail order. And in doing that, I encountered all of the guys in the business, people at Caballero and uh, Royce Distribute, you know, uh, people from Mike Thevis's era group, that Parliament News, all those guys. And because, unlike my father, who's considerably older than me and very conservative, despite uh, despite the business, I was a young, radical, dope-smoking, <laughs> drug-taking uh uh, by day, I was a people-pleasing sort of goody two-shoes, but I wanted to party. And so I used the connections that I made as the purchasing agent, buying from all the studios, to um, start going to the parties and hanging out and finding out what was what. Do you sort think of that a, kind of education, sort of a, like in, in what maybe your, your consumers wanted or, uh, you know? Sex. It was a great sexual education. I, mean, <laughs> I, was, I was 19 years old, 20 years old, fresh out of high school. I'm the kid that didn't get laid in high school. I was the sort of dorky, dweeby. Um, my best shot of hanging out with the cool kids is that I was also the guy that was selling them their weed. So I, I had a little entrepreneurship, but, but, I was that character. I wasn't the guy who was getting the girls. I was maybe the the the, the bad influence friend who somehow behaved like Eddie Haskell once the parents. So were there's around. that there's that movie. I forget. It's it's a couple years old at least. Where uh, the kid uh, the kid was adopted or something, and then he uh, he finds out that his parents died, but that they owned like a, a porn megacorp or whatever. And then he kind of inherits it. And then his life, he's like a high school dweeb turned like, you know, porn king or whatever and getting all the girls and doing all this stuff. So, so basically like what you're saying is like they made that movie after you and that you like had an like <laughs> you had. An I, can, I, can, I can almost see you as a, an extra um, lead role in Boogie Nights. The time frame <laughs> yeah. is, is that about synonymous with what we're talking about as far as time frame? Yes. And I'll tell you the funny thing. I've not seen Boogie Nights. I've not seen uh, One Plant. I've not seen. I consulted on the movie Eight Millimeter with James Gandolfini. He spent he spent the full day in my office just observing me. Wow. I didn't see that movie. I didn't see Hardcore <laughs> uh, with George. It's too weird. I don't know why. It's too strange to me to watch these because I sort of lived it. I was. I remember John Holmes. Uh, like one or two days after the Wonderland incident, a very good friend of mine in our industry, shall remain nameless, was at a party the night of the incident when John Holmes showed up, freaked out, and uh, still shooting drugs, you know, in front of every... Um, so, uh, yeah, when I, I would say at the height of all of this, it sort of all culminated in 1986 when I was roommates with Paul Norman and Gina Fine, and we had this crazy party house in Studio City on Valley Heart Drive. And ours was the place to go. It was at the height of the cocaine era. Mm -hmm. And our parties, our pajama parties were legendary because they brought in a mix of mainstream and porn people. And all I can tell you is that the, the final thing with all of that happened in 1988 when I got sober. That's, you know, there was a reason I needed to get sober. Mm -hmm. um, which yeah. interestingly takes us up to the year after 88 is 89 um, and the obscenity bust. Um, and I want to spend a little time talking about obscenity today from your point of view over a long 
string of observing them, being involved in them. But what was that first one like for you? I mean, suddenly, you know, I don't know all the details of it, but you know, you you were one of the ones that took it on the chin pretty hard in the early days. It was my it was my first federal. It was my first experience as a federally indicted defendant. It wasn't my first run in with obscenity law or you know running afoul of law in this business i had been um i had to when i was running catalina video our studio we had a studio outside of los angeles county this was before the freeman decision and our studio in ontario was busted and i had to deal with uh with all of that i um so I'd had lots of experience on a local level with los angeles police department administrative vice I had friends in the vi- on the vice squad. They were guys who knew my father and respected my father. It's a strange, uh, it's strange bedfellows uh, back in those days where the cops and the robbers knew each other by name and they were friendly and it was just, you know, you do your job, I do my job. Um, this was my first uh, experience with it on a federal level. I mean, my very first day working for my dad, I was driving a van picking up um, uh, magazines at a place called CPLC. And as I turned the corner, the, the my porn raids were in full swing. It was, before the, it was before there were cell phones and I had to call my dad and say, what's going on here? There's a, uh, you know, there's news cameras and wow. there is a, uh, a full bus going on. So I knew about that. It isn't, and this is, this is in 1979. So mm-hmm. a full 10 years later, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with how it goes. And, and when I was... Sorry, go, I mean, going through that, I mean, that's not something most people can, can even envision or, or even think about how that must feel. I mean, the pressure and, and that experience is pretty intense. Like, anytime the, the, the law itself, like, whenever I get pulled over by the police or I get stopped at the border, like, I'm friggin' shaking, like... There's just that kind of like overwhelming like authority that's coming down on you. So I mean, coming through it pretty much uns- relatively unscathed, I imagine. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not in prison. So uh, did anything kind of like good come out of it? Um, uh, maybe a life lesson or something that you used later down the road? Um, in a weird w- in a weird way, yes. Um, and, and again, I, I mean, at the time, my view on it was. I probably knew more about First Amendment law and specifically obscenity law. And in 1989, I was fully versed in Roth versus U.S. versus U.S. and Ginsburg, and you know, uh, 300 feet of eight millimeter film versus. Uh, you know, I'm curious. I knew I had all the background, and I knew who the lawyers were. I knew I knew what the whole thing was about. I. Um, the scary part was that at the time I was the father of a one year of a one year old and a two year old son, and I recognized that I might actually go to jail. The good news was that I had people behind me, uh, my co-defendants, the owners of the company, who stood behind me the whole way. Nobody just hung me out to dry. You never let the little guy hang out to dry anyway, because that guy presumably can become the the guy who rolls over. It didn't matter. I knew right then because of my, what I perceive as my legacy in the business, the fact that I was a second generation, I was a lifer. I knew that I was going to finally have, I looked at it as an opportunity to do something that my father referred to as being a stand-up guy. I was going to be the stand-up guy. 
I wasn't going to tempt, but um, uh, I wanted to, it was, it was, I made it clear to my people, you don't have to worry about me. They did make, the government did make me an offer to roll, to roll on the big guys. And I absolutely would never, ever in my life consider such a thing. Right. Years later, Hold that thought for one second, because we're going to take a short commercial break and refresh our um, connections while we're away, and we'll be right back and bookmark that thought. We'll be right okay. back. And we're back to Dirty Old Men TV with our guest Christian Mann from Evil Angel. Um, Christian, where we left off, you were just um, moving on to sort of the next story and the next saga um, revolving around your early um, obscenity oh. prosecutions. So continue. Yeah, where we left off, you you basically said, you know, like the opportunist that I am, was I able? To, was there a, was there a, a silver lining to the cloud having to, with my obscenity prosecution? Yeah. The the silver lining came in an opportunity five years later when the people who owned the company that I worked at during when we were busted um, gave me an opportunity to buy the company and to do it with some favorable terms. And I would submit that they were possibly much more interested in doing that as a way of acknowledging that I had done the right thing by them and by the company. You know, not only did it, not only did I not roll over, but I also did not present the fractured defense, which is a really dangerous thing in a trial where you have multiple defendants. Mm -hmm. you, you, you need to have unity of defense and defense strategy. One of the big things in obscenity is do you defend the defendants or do you defend the content? And the easy thing for me to do with my lawyer would have been to defend me. Hey, I'm the small guy, I'm the little guy, I'm the low man on the totem pole, the newest employee, the youngest one, the one who makes the least amount of money. Some, I'm almost like collateral damage. I'm not really guilty of this thing. I'm not really guilty of the conspiracy. I wasn't that involved. Well, that's defending me and my actions at a time that what this defense needed was a unified, regardless of whether or not Mr. Mann was that involved or not, or not that involved in the actions and the shipping and the decisions about what to sell and where to ship it, the content is protected. The content is not obscene. And I instructed my lawyer to go with the team, be, be a team player, and follow their lead, even if it, the easiest thing to do would be to slam dunk me out of there, right. get me acquitted, but it might have enhanced the likelihood that they would be convicted because it would create a, a sort of a separation of good guy and a bad guy, right. sort of pink in the brain. You know? So, like, fast forwarding 20 years later, you actually assisted the legal team of John Stagliano, right, uh, in his successful obscenity defense in Washington. Uh, which was in 2010, I believe. Um, did your prior experience with this kind of is that is that why you were able to assist them, or you know what was? Can you talk a little bit about about that? I've actually got a funny preparatory on that one. Um, after I let this dust settle for about a week after John was acquitted, uh, I figured he wanted to go jump in the hot tub and relax a little bit and get home. And I called him up and I said, John, I wanted to congratulate you, you know, on on your um, acquittal. He says. God damn it, it's because those those idiots and the prosecutors, they didn't even know how to run a DVD player and it was thrown on a technical ground. I wanted to take this to the Supreme Court and win it fair and square, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> which, that's just John Stagliano, which we hope to have him on a future, future show to tell his many, many stories. But 
Over so to you, Christian. I tell you, I, I spoke to John a little bit ago. I, yeah. I, hey, John, you can't bother me for an hour. I'm doing this interview. With, and, and he says to, uh, to tell you hello and that he's to tell you that he's jealous that I'm getting all of this attention when it should be all <laughs> him, 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 quote, unquote. Well, uh, you tell him that he's on my list for future right. shows. To answer Simon's question, let's, uh, let me define uh, what, what we mean when we say that I assisted the legal team. I mean, we had my, the first piece of assistance uh, occurred before I worked for John Stagliano immediately after his indictment, the day, the, the day of the indictment, the day that it's announced. Um, I called up uh, my predecessor here, Chris Norman, and I called his wife, Karen Stagliano, and I said, guys, I know about this, and I, I want to tell you that you have, obviously, my emotional support, you know, my, my, my moral support, but more so, um, you can look to me as a resource, as somebody who's been through it, as somebody who knows what it means to the family, because it's a really difficult thing for a wife and, you know, with a child to go through, and I remember my wife and the kids, and, you know, there's that extra pressure. Um, did Karen, and did Karen I go also, out to DC with him for the entire thing? Me? Did Karen go out with him and the team for the entire thing to Washington? Yeah. For the two boys. She, she was. Can't even imagine. She was there. Well, she was also six months pregnant. And yeah. Was yeah. In front of a jury to have the guy's pregnant wife sitting right there. Um, yeah. And I also said, as far as the, you know, that knowing the kind of guy that John Stagliano is, he's not just going to take an expedient deal. I'm not saying he would never make a deal, but this is, he's going to defend this and he's got deep enough pockets to do it. And he has the principles behind him to do it. You can, the, the danger in a case like this is that somebody can make what is known as bad law. And I felt very committed. I, I felt very passionately that the, that the mistake I didn't want to see Stagliano do is assemble a legal team that wasn't united and that didn't have enough experience at this. And, and I also, truthfully, I lobbied for my guy. I lobbied for mm -hmm. Paul Cambria. Mm -hmm. And John, at that point, had already decided that he was using uh, Lou Serkin. Mm -hmm. Paul had, and, you know, I called Paul that morning. I said, Paul, I'm going to call Stagliano. I'm going to lobby for you. And Paul said, I'd, I would like to be on that case. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and if they've already got Lou, I can work with Lou. You can feel free to tell them that. Um, but but that's I don't I don't solicit business. If you're telling them that, I appreciate it. Sure, I'd like to be on the case because I think it's an important case. But and 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 so I did that. And they said, well, you know, we've already got these two prongs together. And I said, look, you're going to need a real team. You've got three defendants here. You've got two corporations and one individual. All three need separate defense, you know, separate representation because of, uh, you know, the conflict of interest issue. Uh, it's part of, part of what the government does. John didn't get indicted by himself. It was him and two corporations, and they can't be defended by the same lawyer because a lawyer could be in the position of having a conflict between defending the corporation, right. even though it might hurt the other defendant, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I said, I really encourage you to put together the team of Cirkin and Cambria. To me, they are really the one-two punch. They mm -hmm. complement each other yeah. beautifully. They've got, and we had Al Gilbert on that as well. And right? Al Gilbert. Was Al Reed, Reed Lee was he involved in that team? No, Reed Lee was Reed wasn't involved okay. in the team. We did also have um, 
uh, out of Washington, D.C., drawing a blank right now. Really great lawyer. He's the guy that defended the uh, Crush videos, Bobby. Right, right. Real libertarian, uh, mm -hmm. Bob, Bob Corn Revere. Right. And so I think the first piece of assistance that I gave to the team overall is my insertion of Paul Cambria into the case. Mm -hmm. And then from there, most of my assistance to the legal team was really administrative. I knew how to do little bits of research within the industry that was maybe a little bit tougher for those guys. But the biggest piece of, of assistance that I gave wasn't so much assisting John, although that's the net result. I was assisting the lawyers in getting through to John with certain ideas. John had this idea, like you mentioned, Colin, not only did he want to take it to the Supreme Court, he wanted to take the stand in his own defense. He wanted to get up there and do Mr. Smith Goes to Washington yep, yep. and tell the good people <laughs> of the jury why this is wrong, why, this law is, why, this, why the law is a bad law. And one yep. of the things, of course, that the, one of the first instructions a judge gives a jury and in a case like this is, you don't get determined. You don't get to determine if it's a good law or not a good law. That's none of your business. Your mm -hmm. job is to, is to say was this law violated, whether you like the law or not. So there were John had a lot of um, ideas based on his on his principles and his very strong felt opinions about what he should be able to do. But he didn't have the experience with how the law works, what a judge will allow, what a courtroom can accept. You can't just walk into the courtroom and off the cuff make your best, strongest defense, your impassioned plea. And you can't say whatever you want to a jury. Um, there was also some questions about what to present, what not to present. And I, ex I told them of my experience with the focus group in our case in, in Dallas and how much we learned from that. And focus groups are very, very expensive to do. Mm -hmm. And yet I felt it was worth it because I thought we would learn a lot about what a jury from that community is likely to believe and likely to look at. Because you do a focus group in the community where the trial right. is going to occur. So um, I, I suspect it was a secondary benefit of right. you. Um, assisting everyone as far as what they were eating for dinner at least a few times. Um, Paul Cambria and Diane Duke from Free Speech Coalition uh, just had dinner together in Miami a couple of weeks ago. I can attest that Paul Cambria can find the best Italian restaurants owned, family owned with Italians in the kitchen any city on earth because oh my god. So I assume you had a good dinner in there somewhere at Paul's instigation. When we were in Texas, some of our highfalutin Beverly Hills lawyers were going to the Four Seasons and dining on pheasant under glass, and Paul would tell a couple of us guys, he'd say, fuck that, I know where we're going, and he'd drive <laughs> us out to the outskirts of town to some little-known barbecue joint where mm -hmm. they give you plates. They, they, throw the, they throw the food on a cafeteria tray, <laughs> right. and, it was, and he said, you know, those guys can can go ahead and, and have their own cuisine, man. This is the real shit right here. And he was right. And, that's uh, and we're planning on having uh, Paul, uh, Paul's going to be on the show in coming months. And I was thinking it would be kind of fun is to set him up in a kitchen and do a cooking show. Because <laughs> that man can make beef bouillonnette like nobody's business, I hear. So look, yeah. something to look forward to on Dirty Old Men um, TV. 
Paul Cambria cooking show. And and also <laughs> another little thing about the, about this show is is uh, the rawness of it. We want to be very very raw, give you guys real opinions, and not only that, but show you a little bit behind the curtain of of the production issues that we have. Good old Skype. You, you see Colin's camera kind of coming in and out there. That's just Skype decides to have a bad connection or whatever. So if you're wondering why you randomly see a gorgeous picture of him in black and white and stuff. That's that's just him kind of going that's offline. Me just and kind of fading. Yeah, that's me fading, thought, fading away. <laughs> I I think it's the preferred view of Colin. That's just my. <laughs> I was thinking the same about you, Chris. Uh, actually, we've got a funny. soft filter on us. Cambria will be a great guest. Unlike a lot of other people in his, I, Cambria to me is a paradox. He is, when it comes to the law and history, he is the most brilliant, the most educated and the fastest thinker I've ever seen. And a strategist, especially in a courtroom setting, he's the best debater, the best arguer. He, he's, nobody comes close, in my opinion. Once you get him out of that realm, he is a total blue-collar yeah, guy. He is, he's yep. a Harley-Davidson riding NASCAR-loving, <laughs> uh, cafeteria-eating uh, sort of raunchy guy. Dirty jokes, and he's not—he's he's somewhat uncouth. And you can quote me: Christian Man says Paul Cambria is the uncouth genius. He is—he is both Beauty and the Beast. He's—he's—he's. There's a real duality to his personality, and and I think having him as part of the team was was hugely instrumental in the result. And everybody, I heard some second guessing. Well. That legal team didn't win that case. The prosecution lost it. They, the fact is... It's a two-way street, that, man. <laughs> well, you make your own luck. What our legal team did was capitalize on mistakes made by the prosecution and, know, and, exactly. and have the know-how to do it. Exactly. Um, uh, so I, I'm not going to second-guess him. I think Cambria is great. I... Uh, but that's really what I provided to the legal team was a little bit of my experience in being able to consult with John and suggest to him, hey, uh, do the focus group. It's worth the money. Um, you know what? This approach to the defense that you want to take is something that a jury just won't understand. You're looking at it from your perspective and you're, you're assuming that they understand this kind of production or what we do or how it and and you're better off to go yeah how about listen to your lawyers how about listen to your lawyers i know that you want to be the stand-up guy and you want to take a stand and you don't yeah some of the defense that you know but john's the kind of guy that says if i'm going to walk across that tightrope i want to do it with no net otherwise it's not exciting mm -hmm. and i'm the guy that says john go ahead and walk across the tightrope use the fucking net you've got a wife and kids at home right yep it's okay, not so just you so You've got 30 employees. Yep. So, so hold that thought. And I want to talk about 30 employees and things, but I can see by the clock on the wall here in New Hampshire that all the kiddies just came home from school, and my Internet congestion connection <laughs> just went to shit. So we're going to go to uh, a commercial break, and I'm going to try to find a way to get a Skype video feed that doesn't make me look a, like a um, witness protection feed. So we'll be back in just a little bit. 
Hello everyone and welcome back to DirtyOldMen.tv. We're having a couple of technical issues today, uh, so we're kind of rebooting cams and starting over Skype and everything, but we're going to get right back into the conversation here with our guest Christian Mann. If you can pick up uh, where he left off, I think we all, hopefully we all remember. Um, so we were still talking about obscenity and, and the trial with John Stagliano. I'll, 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 I'll end it by, I'll end the obscenity portion of our, of our broadcast and, and FCC, if you're monitoring this, no, we're not obscene, uh, <laughs> or even indecent. Um, the, my real task af is, occurs after the trial, which is, okay, Stagliano's acquitted, now what? What's going to happen at Evil Angel, not even from a, a legal point of view, how are we now going to face this other challenge, which is maybe more threatening even than the than the law, than the obscenity issue, which is the market right. and survival of media companies that provide video content in 2012. I mean, it, it, it's almost the, the joke is that the government, if they really want to put the porn business out of business, they don't have to go and raid companies and do obscenity busts. They can just sort of sit back and let technology and market and, and bad response to that do the job for them. Can you, can you explain that a bit uh, or, or, or define it for, for maybe someone that doesn't know what you're talking about? Absolutely. We spent uh, in excess of a million dollars defending the obscenity bust and a a tremendous amount of resources. We prevailed, and I would submit that the amount of money and resources spent doing that pale in comparison to what we've lost to online piracy, to um, the amount of money that, that, that is no longer available in the old-fashioned hard goods DVD business as a result of content being provided online hell we're online now and and um the amount of resources required to chase it and the precious few the, the preciously small amount of recourse we have to deal with this and it's part of what leads me to uh my belief that the real solution here is is a, a sort of a three-pronged approach. It's the same way obscenity is defined with three prongs. There's a three-pronged approach to surviving in this really difficult market, and it isn't just litigation. That's one of the prongs. DMCA's going after people who steal content for the either for the fun of doing it or for the profit of doing it and putting it out out you know out there. But that, that, if we're relying on that alone, we're in trouble. And what we had to do was figure out two other approaches, one of them being technological, finding a way with technology to, uh, to outsmart the content thieves. And, and the third prong was marketing, finding a way to make it worthwhile to the consumer to buy what we're making and to feel like they're getting value, like they're getting a reasonable deal, and to maybe take away some of the ability to use the excuse, well, of course I watch free porn on tube sites because it's, uh, they're charging an outlandish price to, to get it. It's, it when I saw, I, the, 
the mirror that I saw wasn't what was happening in the mainstream movie business, but rather what was happening in the mainstream music business. And I was one of those people that said, I'm not surprised that Napster and Kazaa are thriving. After all, I bought a CD. It had eight, it had eight tracks on it. Only two of them were good, and, they, and it cost me 17 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we're, we're in a new age now. I mean, microtransactions are quickly, I mean, we're seeing this big time in the gaming industry where most studios, most game developers are starting to put out free-to-play games with, like, upsell microtransactions. You get a new skin for your character, whatever. Um, or, or you earn something that you, 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 you'd have to spend a week the, the playing to get, right? You could just buy it for 55 cents. Um, and, and do you do you maybe see something like that evolving in adult as well? I mean, we have stuff like clips for sale, but I mean, with clips for sale, it's great in, in a lot of ways. But if you if you actually break it down, it can be, actually be a lot more expensive than just buying a pay like buying a membership to a pay site. So I mean, do you do you foresee any kind of like evolution into like the iTunes right? Like iTunes like. 99 cent song sales and stuff something that's like really affordable it's it's hard to turn down a 99 cent sale you know on something that you want and you you want to support that artist and i think <clears throat> itunes recently or, or like six months ago or something surpassed over like 10 billion sales or something or like a billion i mean songs sold let, let me something. let me throw something on there right now simon what you're talking about probably the biggest reason why most studios and producers and adults um sites and networks don't do the iTunes style 99 cent songs is because that price point is almost impossible to get a merchant account um, in the high risk category okay. to be able to okay. do microprocessing or micropayments. I mean, we've, we've tried all kinds of things and it's just very, very difficult to bill un under $3 for right. anything. Right. And that's not really considered a microtransaction. It's like three bucks. Right. So, I mean, just from the merchant point of view, I thought yeah, I'd throw so there's that actually like a there's, a there's a reason, reason. why, yeah, yeah. With the, because the merchant banks that are covering high risk will not let you do a $1 transaction. The deal, in my opinion, the deal is this. What Apple did with iTunes does work for adult content. The part about the micro thing that doesn't work is you have to get somebody to be willing to commit to a certain amount. Imagine if instead of being able to go to iTunes and buy a 99 cent song, if you were told, okay, you're going to get your iTunes account. The only thing that we're going to really need from you is a commitment that you'll spend at least 20 bucks there. If you're willing to do that, you're in. That takes care of the, 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 the problem that Colin was identifying, but it still gives the consumer the kind of control over their content purchasing, over their content viewing, whether they're doing it on a VOD site where it is pay-per-view, I'm spending a certain amount on minutes, or I'm, I'm specifically streaming certain bits of content. And instead of having to watch that whole movie, you know, there's six scenes mm -hmm. in that movie, I'm only turned on by that one girl. I'm right. only going to look at that one scene. Well, I mean, let's Here's use that. Here's you, the good news. Okay. That guy who before would have bought the DVD maybe, spent the 30 bucks or $40 and really gotten off on only one scene, now can, for that same money, get seven or eight scenes mm -hmm. that he got to select and here's the beauty. It isn't that people weren't willing to spend the same amount of money. When I used to spend 15 bucks on a CD, I still spend 15 bucks on music 
but I'm getting value for my $15. I'm happy with what I got because I like all the tracks that I purchased and I keep coming back and purchasing more. Right, and right. That's, that's the marketing approach where we had to take into account what do our consumers need and want so that we, we can tell them they're getting value so they can feel that they're getting value provided by the source, organized in a way that's easy to use. The tube site experience, you get free porn, but it isn't a great experience. You don't no. get to easily get to what you want. You don't get, it's, what we're basically saying is, look, we will, get, we will answer your legitimate complaints. We will give, we will create, we will present you with a competitive product and give you a reason to be willing to spend a little bit of money. I'm willing to buy music on iTunes because of this. I get it the way I want it. And because I don't get the viruses and the nonsense that I get with maybe a Napster. And I know that I'm, that I'm not stealing content anymore. It, and it, that's the thing. What's the threshold at, what's, at which point somebody says, I know that I'm stealing content but I feel justified because to buy yeah, it is a yeah. ripoff. Right, well, well you're, you're putting those point. people without any option, right? You're not giving them an option when you're putting it out of their price range or what they feel is their price range for not being ripped off because as a consumer feeling ripped off, there's nothing worse that like, like makes your, your blood boil, right? <laughs> and it's been proven by iTunes that you know, if, you, if you put it in a, in a package and a, and a price range that they feel, and, and this could be up to any price, right? Uh, in my opinion, it depends on the product. But like you were saying, I mean, this is, it's especially um, kind of uh, exemplified by iTunes and the microtransactions is that people aren't naturally pirates, they want to pay for the experience. And if you give them the experience, and I think it's actually pushed us to even a higher level, right, where we're providing that experience. Like, we're, we're giving them more and, and easier to access content all around. I mean, even this podcast is another uh, kind of a variation of that, right, where we're putting out content. Simon, one more, one more point. It's it, as producers, and this is what I love about the free market, is it gives us the incentive and the mandate to get better. I can't make a movie with six scenes and two of them are hot and that's what's going to be on the front. The other four are mailed in throwaways and still I knowing that each scene, each musical track, because that see porn movies are more like music. There it's an album with individual tracks. Mm -hmm. Each track has to be good because each track has to be able to monetize itself in its own right online. Exactly. And what, what's happening is our directors now think in terms of, I can't, I can't afford to put even one week scene on that thing. I need to make sure that every scene is strong. And guess what? We're creating, we're, we're stepping up our game and that is the market part of the solution, which is you wanna thrive in this world and you, want, and you wanna get, you want revenue, you want people to pay you for what you're doing, Give them a reason to pay you and to, and to present to them something that they can't get in the free experience. Exactly. I always say yeah. when McDonald's starts giving away food, uh, Denny's will be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. uh, uh, high-end restaurants serving a good steak dinner won't. And I'm telling you, I'm the guy, even if I can get hamburgers and french fries for free and I might have a little of that, I'm still going to pay $20 or $30 for a good steak. Right. I still, there's some things, especially when it comes to sex. You know what? I'm the guy who says, 
if I'm looking at two hookers, one is a hundred bucks, one is three hundred bucks, and the three hundred one is the expensive one is hot, the other one is skanky. Doesn't have teeth. <laughs> right. I will I will pay for the three hundred dollar hooker. What I won't do is is pay a thousand dollars. Right. And so well, that's what we let had. Me, let me use that as a jumping off point to something you're doing, your voracious product, uh, which is fascinating to me what you're doing with that and how that really does represent a form of new media with the way you're structuring it in the episodic approach. So just sort of introduce that and there's, there's a little uh, screen grab coming up here of what the poster looks like. What, what is voracious? Okay. I, uh, John Stagliano um, went to Europe and I went with him the year, uh, rather last year, and uh, worked on a project he wanted to make a video not a film the way fashionistas was and he wanted to, to show that he could still make a big feature with uh some kind of interesting storyline great sets good scene and the thing that john always brings to his big budget movies that our competitors don't necessarily always do real sexual intensity could he capture intense kinky perverted gonzo sex and keep the immediacy that you get with the the intimate shooting environment of a gonzo scene and and bring that to bear and make that the most important part of a big feature and and he he shot this movie voracious one of the things that happened is some some time ago maybe two years ago this guy colin roundtree came to us and said hey i would like to take your movie fashionistas which is very fetish driven and I would like to offer it to members of Wasteland. And what a, it's, you know, that's this three hour epic or four hours, whatever. What if I put it out in little bits, in little serial clips and made it, you know, did it in a way that A, gave my consumers a reason to keep coming back to the website? Because in the web business, the, 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 the deal is give them a reason to come back make them feel pretty confident that if I was there this morning at 10 a.m. and I go tomorrow morning at 10 a.m., I'm not going to look at the same thing. You know, if you're a newspaper, you have to have a fresh edition every day. Mm -hmm. And so we did that, and we did this licensing thing with Colin and Fashionistas. And truthfully, I don't know what the response was for uh, Wasteland or how it did, but it started us thinking in terms of a serialized <laughs> approach to presenting content. Yeah, and what, what, I, what, what I did once um, Christian and John gave me permission to serialize it is sat down, got the entire movie, put it on a timeline, and found sensible places at the end of a scene where you could, you know, cut and then do a coming in the ep next episode of Fashionistas. And the same thing. Um, so the whole thing is like watching a full season of The Sopranos by the time you're done that just rotates through. Where it benefits us, as Christian said, is it builds retention for the members. They want to see what's, you know, coming next where it benefits evil angel i hope anyway um is that it's not downloadable it's in a flash environment that they can watch it on a yeah, pretty wide screen you know maybe 700 wide but it's certainly not being able to go by the d like buying the dvd and watching it on a big screen tv at home so we just shoot the traffic back to them saying want to buy the dvd it's a whole lot better than watching it you know on a streaming flash and seems to be a nice little way to do things and i love the episode things we've been doing a lot of episodic filming of our wasteland original stuff now based on just the power of that solution so and back to you christian 
and, and it works well for the web. You know, if you think about television, the soap opera, you know, the real serials, right? Soap operas or even, you know, who shot JR? If, yeah, right. if you can edit in a way that leaves some, that gives them, it's a, it's a fine line. You want to give them enough, but you don't, but you want to leave them wanting more. And that's that small window of having given them, boy, that was great, but I'm full. No, you want to, that was great. I can't wait to the next. Right. That's where you want to go. And so. Or even better so, yet. Wow, this is so great. I don't want to wait for the next week and the next week and the next week. I'm just going to go buy that DVD and watch the whole thing. I it's wish I could like, do that with Game of Thrones, man. Oh, my God. Like every week on Monday, I'm just like, no, I need the whole DVD set. But TV does that really well. And and, and like what you guys are doing with this episodic, you've totally taken I, that. And, and, a, and a lot of people are doing I I love it. I absolutely love a it. Little and, bit, a little bit by accident. So John makes this movie, and as he does, when John shoots, man, he goes where the where the where John is. I refer to John as the Wizard of Vid. I mean, it's completely visceral for him. He doesn't start with an outline and a timeline and say, "Okay, I'm now going to make a movie that fits here." He starts with, "I'm going to make this movie that's going to show this." And to hell with the rules. I'll deal with that later. And so he makes this movie, and he says, "You know, I don't even. I, I don't know how many DVDs this is going to require. This is going to be like hours and hours. I don't want to edit anything." I don't want to, I mean, I want to edit, but I don't want to lose, I don't want important or exotic or erotic or any, I don't want to leave anything good on the cutting room floor. I want to make it as good as could be, but it's so fucking long. Should I make it, maybe I should do like I did with uh, Safado. I release it as two movies, which by the way, people did not like that so much. And sometimes that doesn't work. You know, it was, it was all the good stuff packed into the second movie. I mean, right, what do you right. do? And it's tough, man. It's, it's really walking a fine wire all the time, but that's kind of also what makes it fun. I mean, if you have too much stuff, good stuff, that means you've done a good job, right? Like, if you're like, shit, I can't fit all this good stuff on a DVD, you've pro you're, you're probably, it's a good problem to right. have, right? All right? Well, remember what Hitchcock said, though, that uh, the length of a movie should be proportionate to the endurance of the human bladder. <laughs> so, uh, YouTube uh, is, is absolutely providing that for humanity now. <laughs> so... So as he's having this discussion, we're also talking to our web people about, you know, we want to market this thing. We want to start doing some teasers. And John says, you know, what if I, what if we did a little teaser for the website? Said, yes, yes, yes. So he starts to cut it. And here's the problem. He doesn't want to edit his entire six hour epic, but he's starting in the editing process. And with each little segment, he figures there's going to be nine segments. And this is occurring at January 2012. And we're thinking in terms of having a full release in September, because September is the cutoff for awards consideration. And there's this nine-month period. There, and, and the idea hits about, well, what about doing a monthly release of one segment culminating in September with the whole thing? limiting it only to our members, evilangel.com members, um, which provides a value. It gives somebody a reason to be an, a member of evilangel.com with something they can't get on other tube sites or anywhere. Right. And, and it gives him the ability to edit as slowly as he wants. He's, we're right you know, now... Christian, I've actually got a suggestion for you if you haven't thought of it yet. <clears throat> 
use it as a retention tool, like a rewards program. And if the member stays with a con- with an active membership for all nine monthly episodes, meaning they've you've got a nine month member, they get a free DVD. I guess from a, as a, if somebody watched all nine episodes and loved it, owning the DVD collector's set as something that you want to keep in your library yeah. actually does make sense. I'll definitely, I'll definitely su- uh, make that suggestion. The, 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 the main thing that, that sort of, that I'm trying to say here is that it gave me as a marketing guy, I'm, I'm, I'm the opposite of John. I'm always thinking in terms of marketing. The, the conflict that John and I have sometimes is uh, when I first started working here, John said, never bring a project to me with the sales pitch. We should do this. It will be a big seller. So I don't care if it's a big seller. I've got a lot of money. I've got enough money I don't need or want anymore. I'm only interested in you telling me that something is good, that it's good quality. That's the sales pitch. And to me, that's, that's, that's almost antithetical to my way of thinking as a marketeer, you know? I think a lot of it goes hand in hand, though, you know, like a good product, something that you, you have a lot of passion in and, 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 and that kind of gets represented in the quality of the work, right? Um, I think that stuff, would you not agree that that's kind of easier to sell? Yes and no. John said, you know, I'm willing to distribute a bad prod, a, a product that doesn't sell well, but if I feel in my heart it was a good thing, I'm okay with it. I'm not willing to distribute something that maybe brings in a lot of money that sells well if I think it's not, it's not who we are, it's not up to standard. But, and, and I thought, well, what a, what a terrible businessman he is. By the way, I work for him. He's the multimillionaire. What a terrible businessman he is. With this. <laughs> well, I mean, and knowing and going back some time with, with John, um, I know because he's told me. He says, fashionistas, fashionistas is my pride and joy, and it costs more money than you can ever even imagine, and maybe this year we'll, we might break even on it. But it's, it's my baby. Yeah. And so yeah. I know exactly yeah. where he's it coming from. It sounds like John is, is like the Blizzard entertainment of porn, right? Because Blizzard is known for... Literally, like they had one game called StarCraft Ghost, and it and it was it was boxed, and the the plastic was on it. It was on the pallets, ready to ship, and then they made the decision to just cut it. They didn't release it. I mean, this thing was going to go on the shelves the next day. It was ready for shipping, and they said no. You know, they take twelve games, uh, twelve years to develop a game, but the level of polish that's put onto that is you know unsurpassed by pretty much any. Uh, other gaming company on a consistent level like they do. So, I mean, I think there's... And, and they literally have more money than God. So, I mean, like, there, there's something there's something to be said for only putting out stuff that you really want to do. I mean, I, it's... Here's what happened. Here's why it did become a good business move. Because it, it's basically a bad business move to knowingly take something that won't sell as well, but because it's good. It's like when Warner Brothers kept supporting Rykuder, um <laughs> What ends up happening on the, in the big picture, on the long-term basis, is you build a brand with a, loyal, with a following that trusts it. You, they know that if they see evilangel.com, if it's, if it's branded Buttman's Choice, they know that if John's behind it, yeah. that it's going to meet his standard. And the other thing is... John, you know, I always thought in terms of if I'm shooting, I'm dispassionate. I want to, I want to provide what I believe the consumers want. And John's always said, "To hell with that! I'm not going to try and second guess what they want. Mm-hmm. I'm going to provide what I would want. I'm going to shoot for myself. 
If they like it, great. If they don't, tough tits. And you know what? The, what ended up happening is it just so happens that millions and millions of people liked exactly what John likes. Right. Mm -hmm. But, well, but as, I, as I, I don't want to jump on you, but um, we're pretty much out of time on this. And we've only made it about a third of the way through our little behind the scenes workshop. So I'm thinking what might be really cool is next month or a few episodes down the road is we bring john on and then bring you in for part of it because we can go up to four people in this thing and you can you ever watch click and clack you know car talk <laughs> we'll just set you guys loose because i'd really like to see the interaction between you and some of this stuff yeah. immovable <laughs> immovable object means it'll, unstoppable it'll, force, it'll, yeah. like, <laughs> it'll be a little bit like ufc uh and at the same time though you, you'll you'll achieve the, we'll serialize this thing, right? I but think we can. We yeah, why don't we serialize uh, it? So, so uh, at this point, we're going to wrap it up. Um, we're going to hang on to all these extra thoughts. And then after we, we end up getting this thing out, we're probably going to get a whole lot of other thoughts uh, based on what we see, how this came out. This has been wonderful. Um, yeah. Certainly no lack of stuff to talk about here or in, inability to talk for a long time. We have, so, we have that, that good problem to have where we have too much good stuff. <laughs> so, so, so Christian, do you have like a one or two sentence chestnut to take a uh, takeaway from you? Yes. Just to anybody? What I, uh, what I, <laughs> I guess I have two things to say. Okay. Which is, um, in, in the end, it always still does, if all else fails, if every marketing ploy is challenged, at the very end, if you create a quality product, Sometimes that will be the best marketing the marketing that there is. And we're talking about all of this different way to consume this stuff. My, my, the thing that I think everything changes and my job is to make sure that this company adapts to all of the changes while never ever changing from its one core value. You know, I, my job is to understand that People will always want sexually good, hot sexual entertainment. The way we get it to them is going to change and things, you know, today it's the Internet. Who knows mm -hmm. what's, you know, holographic images might be down the road. But the one thing that can't change is giving people a really great jacking off <laughs> or, or erotic interest experience as long as that is the one thing that never goes mm -hmm. out the window we'll yep. we'll be okay right on do you have any uh, like a, yeah, a sure. or, or two one or... thing i promise next time we do this even for a few seconds i will have a scantily or partially naked woman back like somewhere <laughs> right here for at least part of it i'll have her Sweet. come in so scantily, scantily would be good so we don't get thrown off of YouTube any faster than we're going to get thrown off anyway on this show. So. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so John, or John, but um, Christian, thank you very much. You, you are so just spot on on things and have no problem articulating it. It's always a pleasure. We're going to have you back on the show and maybe get John in there too at this point. Um, Simon? When we're up, to want to take us out? Yeah, uh, please, guys, uh, make sure that you do uh, visit uh, all of our Twitters and follow us uh, at Simpatico TV, uh, at Wasteland Movies, at Evil CSM, as well as uh, I, I think the other one I have it overlaying on the screen is at, at Evil Angel Video, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Yeah, you guys have been seeing it this entire episode there. Go check out Spice Cash, Wasteland, Femdom Bride, all those good sites that you've been seeing the uh, overlay logos spinning around there all episode as well. www.evilangel.com. 
as well. And uh, every week, uh, I believe every Friday, we're going to be putting out these episodes. So please do check back at DirtyOldMen.tv. And it looks like Christian Mann has one more thing to say. Brooklyn Lee, who is the the woman who captured all of this mainstream media attention with the photo with Bill Clinton recently. Uh She is the big star of episode five of Voracious, which premieres in June. All right. Only on EvilAngel.com. EvilAngel.com. And, and, and let's just hope that Bill Clinton will have a good sense of humor and do a walkthrough on you. <laughs> <laughs> All okay, right, guys. So thank thanks, you so much. Christian, thank you very much. We'll thank talk you to very you. much, Christian. We'll see you guys next time.